Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Here Are the Nominees, a uh, offshoot podcast from the Media by Us, where we talk about Oscar-nominated films of the past. I am Brent, joined by David. David, how are you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's fun to be back in the saddle. yippee ki <laughs> It is. It's, it's been a while. They... They dragged us back, people clamoring for us to be back. Yeah, there were literally uh, well, ones of people that have been asking me, <laughs> where's the podcast? What happened to the podcast? So uh, while we kind of wait for life to settle back down for the big group of uh, everyone, we're, we're um, it, it, you know, it's become harder for all four of us to get together on a regular basis, so uh for now, we're, we're going to be trying this little this little podcast series, uh, which I'm super excited about. Um, as uh, if you listen to episode zero, which I teased on the uh, on the website, uh, you should know that our first episode is about Die Hard, 1988 action classic. So um, we'll jump right into it. If uh, first off, David. What was your personal experience coming into this with Die Hard? Like, how, was this a favorite? Had you just seen it? What? I've I've seen it before. I've seen it uh, a couple times. Um, I, I did I did not see it when it came out. I was about three years old when it came <laughs> out. Uh, but not not sneaking in any theaters as a three year old. Um, it was a par- It was a movie that my parents really loved, um, especially my mom who. My listeners of Talkie Talk know she loves exploding shoot 'em up ones where especially people die in very interesting ways, and uh, I think this this definitely qualifies for it. It's a uh, it's a classic action movie, and I I kind of inherited that through my parents, and I've I've definitely seen it a lot of times. Yeah, this, this was one of my favorite movies. Um, but I haven't really seen it in a while. It's been probably at least five years since I've seen this movie, maybe longer. And so I was curious going in as to whether it would hold up on the same level. I knew I would enjoy it because it's just there's so much nostalgia for me tied up with Die Hard. I think I probably mm-hmm. watched this for the first time somewhere between, I don't know, somewhere around 1994 or 1995 when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And because um, I, I was well aware of this movie when Die Hard with a Vengeance came out. And so... Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was a huge fan of it back in the day. Had it on VHS, got it on DVD, and um, but since I've, uh, you know, over the last few years, we've kind of through the podcast been pushing each other to watch, you know, quote unquote better movies, you know, more or just different movies, right? Different movies and. Some movies from that era of my life don't really hold up that well, so I was interested to see if Die Hard would um, would hold up, and I'm happy to say it holds up beautifully. I love this movie still. I think I maybe have more appreciation for Die Hard now than I did. Yeah, having having watched more movies out there, you realize what a uh, um, I don't know about Trailblazer, but what a elevation of the genre this was about taking everything everything stylistically seriously like it looks good and as well as it feels good and it's fun and the looking good thing was not always the biggest biggest part of these 80s actions movies where the action can be kind of unfocused and i don't know they just do they were a lot of attention to detail on this one um kind of looking back on it now 
Okay, well, let's uh, let's run through the plot real quick, and I'm just going to be reading from Wikipedia here, and interrupt me if there's anything you want to comment on, uh, but I'll also take a little breaks to ask you questions. Uh, on Christmas Eve, 1988, New York Police Department Detective John McClane arrives in Los Angeles intending to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly. He is driven to Nakatomi Plaza by his driver, Argyle, to attend a Christmas party held by Holly's employer, the Nakatomi Corporation. Argyle waits for McClane in the garage. While McClane changes clothes, the tower is seized by a German radical, Hans Gruber, and his heavily armed team. I'm impressed they have all these names, by the way. Uh, Carl and his brother Tony, Franco, Theo, Alexander, Marco, Christoph, Eddie, Uli, Heinrich, Fritz, and James. Those inside the tower are taken hostage, except for McLean, who slips away. So I gotta admit, I can't really place Uli. I forgot which one Uli was. I, I'm just guessing Uli might be the, maybe half of those. Uli might be the. So what struck me about this team of terrorists is they are, um, or this team of thieves is they are uh, a wide range of um, ethnicities and backgrounds and nationalities. You've got, like, I think two or three Americans, a handful of Germans, but also, like, I think Uli might be the guy who's, like, kind of vaguely Mongolian-looking. Like, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's, like, a weird... There's kind of everything is covered here. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... The, the one thing they all have in common is they all appear to be kind of rich, uh, I don't know, well-dressed. They're, they're very 80s, this team of uh, thieves. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're all wearing like s- designer sweaters or designer suits. Um, and they seem to not really need the money that much. But uh, So what do you think about that? I want to talk a little bit about the setup of this movie, and I think this is a good place to mm-hmm. do it. I love the setup of Die Hard, and I think it's um, – I think the beginning of the movie – is what I really appreciated most this time, which is the kind of the way it establishes um, the stakes and the uh, exactly kind of what's at play here. So first off, you get John McClane on the plane and you can tell something's kind of amiss because the waitress or not the, the stewardess makes uh, kind of eye contact with him and kind of gives him a flirtatious look. And he, he's mm-hmm. a little receptive to it, but he's still kind of just sort of, puts his head down and leaves the plane and you get the feeling that like, that's sort of your first hint that, that things are on the rocks with his wife. And, um, but he's still committed to trying. It gives you the sense that it's sort of his last gasp attempt to reconcile with Holly. That's how this feels to me. Like this is one last shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think the whole roll up of, um, seeing him on the plane and, uh, going to the uh, Nakatomi Plaza and, and the hotel and all that, the room. It's such a great example of revealing character through action and reaction versus I think what you get in a lot of dumber action movies, which is like, it's my last day on the job or like yeah. I'm doing this for my family or you know what happened in Bogota. It's just like it's, it's more subtle and I think it kind of reveals – to us, the audience, more who this guy is because he's going to be our, you know, it's basically like, this is your guy. Yeah. <laughs> this movie sets things sets things up for later in the movie in subtle ways, like you just said. Like, uh, for example, the guy on the plane telling him to uh, ball up his feet in, you know, carpet. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get over the uh, uh, jet lag and whatnot and uh, or whatever uh, from flying. And uh, that establishes John to be in you know, without shoes for the rest of the movie. And 
it's a nice, mm-hmm. really nice little touch because there are lazier ways to do that. Yeah, it's, it's really clever of like uh, connecting, like you get comfort for, through your feet. And that's something we're going to take the take away from the character later when he doesn't have his shoes and his feet are just chock full of broken glass. It's kind of, I, I agree. I thought that was that was pretty cool. A nice little, uh, um, I don't know, a light, nice little mirror scenes right there. You can also tell that that McLean. It's not just it's it's not really that his it's it's not really his wife that he's having the real issue with. It's it's California, uh, because when he gets when he's going through the airport, he says he mutters things about California multiple times, and uh, you know he goes. You get even. I think there's this sense that like he's from New York. He's old school. He's East Coast kind of things have been the same for a long time and he's coming to the new coast the california the um nakatomi plaza itself is an unfinished building even in the movie and i Mm -hmm. think there's just something about that that kind of all pushes towards this conflict that he's going to have it's not like just john mcclain against some terrorists it's john mcclain against uh the terrorists slash thieves and also just this California lifestyle that he does not fit into. He shows up at this party. He's the only party goer who is not wearing a tie. He's the only male party goer. I actually watched in the movie to see if there were any other mm-hmm. um, party goers that were dressed as casually as him. And there were not. Um, yeah. He's, he's kind of transplanted as a, a man out of time and something we can touch on themes later. It's like him versus otherness whether it's you know it's it's yuppie yuppie capitalism versus like new york pragmatism and grittiness it's america versus europe it's like macho versus uh you know in touch with your feelings everything about him being in new york and coming on the terms of california and bonnie his wife who's trying to start a career is like Here's an old school guy, and here's his wife who's trying to start her own career. It's all in opposition to kind of where where the world is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one last uh, mention is uh, Argyle, who is delightful. I love Argyle so much. Yeah, I saw on, uh, I think it was on uh, IMDb Trivia, which I always love checking out, that they spent a lot of time writing a lot of the side characters, like little quirks and having them have more personality because Bruce Willis was like filming moonlighting during this. So they didn't have him as long as you would like a Arnold Schwarzenegger for predator or something. It's interesting. He wasn't like on location the whole time. He was flying back and forth. Uh-huh. So uh, that's kind of a great, um, you know, finding a limitation or a hurdle and making something creative with it. Because I, I agree the, the side characters are sometimes the best part in the movie. And I think Argyle works too because he's he's John's only early connection to another kind of blue collar type person, even though he wears mm-hmm. a white collar for his job. He is a, you know, he's he's a grunt. He he's just a driver, and uh, I think John feels some rapport with him. And he even says he used to be a cabbie, which has that New York sort of connotation to it. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, I really do like Argyle a lot. Um, well, moving on from the, the setup of this movie, uh, well, here we go. Gruber interrogates, interrogates Nakatomi executive Joseph Takagi 
For the building's vault code, Gruber reveals that he plans to steal $640 million, uh, which is equivalent, I like Wikipedia noting this, it's equivalent to $1.38 billion in 2019 money. Uh, in un- oh. untraceable bearer bonds. The gang is pretending to be terrorists to conceal the theft. Takagi refuses to cooperate and is executed. Theo is tasked with breaking into the vault. McLean, who is secretly watching events, triggers a fire alarm and a failed attempt to summon the authorities. Tony is sent after McLean, who kills him, obtaining his weapon and radio, which he uses to contact the LAPD. Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate. So in this section, we have... Um, First off, I like the I like how the terrorists or the the thieves all have different sort of jobs in the building, and so mm-hmm. you have Theo working on the vault. You have the the weird the really weird scene of the guy trying to uh, wire the phones, and uh, mm-hmm. the other guy with the chainsaw just cutting through. And it's never yeah, it was it was not clear to me exactly what he was racing against time to do. All that all <laughs> yeah. I knew was he was really sweating it. <laughs> Yeah, I think Carl was the one who was, uh, you know, the kind of the main secondhand yeah. bad guy. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> I've, I've seen this movie countless like, times, and I have no idea what that moment is about, other than like if, if chainsawing worked, like why would you even worry about the like so they wouldn't know you were there? It's like I have no idea. I guess it was the alarm system, maybe that he was. I, I, I don't know this. This movie, like many action movies, doesn't really um, worry too much about the details, but mm-hmm. uh, that was a um, that was an odd little moment. But I do generally like how the the uh, the thieves all have to break up and do different tasks. Um, but also here we get to we get to meet Al Powell in a convenience store where he's buying some. Uh, was it? He's, is he buying Twinkies? I think so. Yeah. It says, for my wife. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Al Powell, I think, is a great addition to the movie because he is, by this point, you know, uh, Argyle is kind of locked away in the basement, not doing anything except listening to Stevie Wonder. And uh, this gives John McClane a blue-collar kind of buddy in the movie. Uh, even though there's a separation, a physical separation, uh, he can't he can't be with the guy, but he has some sort of contact to help him not feel so long uh, alone. And I love Al for that reason. Yeah, Al would kind of be his corollary in California if, like, being a cop growing up and and having a wife, he'd basically be Al. You know, the the kind of beat cop and. The, I think he kind of sees himself in him, which is uh, helpful for later on in the movie where, you know, Al, tell me what's going on out there, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting way they get around McLean being so isolated for most of the movie uh, by giving him that walkie-talkie, which actually opens up lines of communication in various forms, uh, both to uh, an ally mm-hmm. and also to his enemy, ultimately. And I think it's really great that it gives him dialogue in a movie where he is mostly by himself. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not having like a Robert Redford, all is lost situation. He's just like, <laughs> it, it, it furthers his character and it furthers the plot by both. Yeah. By both the cops and terrorists kind of listening and in just like we, the audience are. 
So I like that the one thing, you know, we were talking earlier uh, about how subtle a lot of the touches are in the movie and how subtle, subtly they set up things later. I think the one thing that isn't subtle is Al talking about why he's, uh, you know, at a desk job now, why he's no longer really uh, a confident member of the force. And he's, you know, he tells the story and he's just like, I can't bring myself to draw my gun again. And I think that's the only the only instance in the movie where it is just very, very obvious foreshadowing. (laughs) Um, But I also, yeah, not, I I also like uh, while we're for actually, okay, this is coming up next. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, So uh, continuing with the plot, McLean kills Marco and Heinrich uh, recovering Heinrich's bag of C4 explosives and detonators. Seeing nothing amiss, Powell prepares to leave when McLean drops Marco's body onto the patrol car. Powell summons the LAPD. A SWAT team lays siege to the building but are neutralized by gunfire on the ground floor and anti-tank missiles fired by James and Alexander. McLean throws some C4 down an elevator shaft. The explosion kills the pair, ending the assault. Uh, This is when the action of the movie really ramps up. (laughs) Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, lots of C4 in this section of the movie, and it is all the better for it. The the um, the explosion, the C4 explosion down the elevator shaft, I think the shot from outside the building is awesome. I love the shot of where you see all the explosions going off on the on that floor. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. And this is in practical effects, so it had to be done with a miniature, I'm guessing. Or, uh, or they just did that to a building. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, you know, friend of Talkie Talk, Al Hood, uh, he, he did mention, we were talking about this, and he, he said that, uh, he said, you know, maybe that's why Argyle listens to the same song all night long, because they, they were given a choice between more explosives and more songs for Argyle to listen to, and John McTiernan just said, <laughs> um, I'm going to need those explosives. <laughs> So Argyle, Argyle, we're going to have to downgrade Argyle from a mixtape to a single, a cassette single of Stevie Wonder's Skeletons. And you're going to have to listen to that for like four or five hours or whatever, however long this movie is supposed to last. And instead, we get to blow up more stuff. I mean, that's what the car phone's for. Break up the Stevie Wonder with he's just calling friends, too. <laughs> uh, maybe he's totally maybe he's only maybe he only got to listen to, through that song once and he just had to keep pausing it to take calls from his buddies. But the uh, I love when the so the explosion happens and uh, you know he blows the glass out into the parking lot and uh, I think Al tells him on the on the uh, on the radio something about like uh, uh, you you know you're covering us with glass everybody's really upset I forget who tells him but I I love that McLean says who gives a shit about glass which is beautiful forecast or uh, foreshadowing. I think mm-hmm. I, I love that. It's a line I've never noticed before, but I love that McLean is so cavalier about glass at that moment. <laughs> yeah, just you wait, McLean. But uh, next up, Holly's coworker Harry Ellis attempts to mediate between Gruber and McLean for the latter's surrender. McLean refuses. Ellis is killed. Gruber checks the explosives on the roof and encounters McLean. He portrays himself as an escaped hostage. McLean offers him a gun. Gruber attempts to shoot him, but the gun's empty. 
Carl, Franco, and Fritz arrive. McLean kills Fritz and Franco, but is badly injured by shattered glass from shot-out office windows and is forced to flee, abandoning the detonators. So first off, this is the first time a Harry Ellis has come up in this plot description, and what a little side character. Yeah, I was about to... The, all those sentences you said, this is definitely my favorite part of the movie. We got, we got Harry, we got introduction to Bill Clay... Yeah, this is just a great, great part of the movie. Um, so Ellis at the beginning, you know, he's got he's such a dick in the office when he's you know like, hey Holly, show him the watch. You know, it's just a token of our appreciation for all the things she's doing here. Uh, Rolex. <laughs> yeah, he's such a smarmy guy. Um, mm-hmm. and when he sits down, he's like Hans, booby, you know. Sweet. It's just—I don't know. That scene is just—it's just a several minutes of cringe because we know what this guy's like, and we know what Hans is like, but he doesn't really know what Hans is like. So it's—it's—it's it's, it's weird. It's—it's it's rough. Yeah, it may be like one of two instances of pushing these side characters, you know, to give them all the the quirks and interesting kind of foibles and things they got almost too far i'd say him and uh maybe theo at times <laughs> you know the uh high-tech terrorist yeah just kind of put it on a little too little too much but it's almost so much that it's it goes back to good again with what he's doing with ellis it is good well I mean, it's, it's the perfect it's a perfect encapsulation of you know california as a person to john <laughs> mcclain right? yes well, and also, if Ellis seems like a bit much, they've they've had him doing enough cocaine at the beginning of the movie to uh, kind of believe it as just you know this guy's a bit much. Yeah. Um. So you know, McLean and Gruber have been talking for a while now at this point in the movie over the walkie-talkie, and he's the you know he's done the the yippee kaye line and whatnot, and it's great to have them finally meet, but with Gruber having the upper hand, or so it seems, as Bill Clay. And I love that little scene where they're together and Bill, you know, Gruber's got his American accent going and uh, McLean's just like trying to help him get out of there. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a brilliant introduction of those characters. It's kind of their own meet cute there. <laughs> They've been talking this whole time and just the uh, you see that uh, Hans Gruber is not just a bully and he's not just a tactician there, but he. It's a great bit of character work that he he's thinking on his feet and he's got like multiple plans in place and you know it's just really smart to kind of affect that way and there's there's really it's his survivor kind of instinct there's no other way out of that other than you know instantly recognizing he doesn't know who I am I don't know who he is and let's roll with my American accent. Mm-hmm. Outside, FBI agents commandeer the situation, ordering the power to be shut off, which is, of course, what the terrorists want. As Gruber had anticipated, the power cut disables the final vault lock. His team collects the bonds. Gruber demands a helicopter to be flown to the roof. The FBI agrees, intending to send gunship helicopters to eliminate the group, regardless of collateral damage to the hostages. I'm going to plow right through into the next one. A despondent McLean contacts Powell. He tells McLean that he accidentally shot a child once while on patrol has not used his gun since. McLean realizes Gruber intends to detonate the rooftop, killing the hostages and the FBI agents to fake his team's deaths. Carl confronts McLean 
and they fight. Gruber sees a news report by reporter Richard Thornburg on McLean's children and deduces that he is Holly's husband. The hostages are escorted to the roof. Gruber keeps Holly with him. During the long fight, McLean seemingly kills Carl. He kills Uli and rescues the hostages just before Gruber detonates the roof, destroying the FBI helicopters. Meanwhile, Theo retrieves the getaway vehicle from the parking garage, but is neutralized by Argyle, who has been following the events on his radio. Okay, a lot lot right there. Um, First off, the fight with Carl... Which I just have I just have one comment on it. So this is this is the best example of something weirdly unique about this movie. I feel like, which is, you know, it's 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 very common. Action movies have the hero fight hand to hand combat, fight the villains and whatnot. Uh, but mm-hmm. I don't know of an action hero who yells and taunts the villains literally while he's fighting them quite as much as John McClane does. And in this fight, he literally yells, "I'm gonna cook you and I'm gonna eat you." At Carl, and it is it is the weirdest insult. He he yells like, "Come on, mother!" Like half the time, like in some of his fights when he's like fighting these random you know, uh, thieves, he is he's he's always yelling something when he's punching them, and it's he doesn't wait for like the quippy post fight well, uh, comment. Although I guess he he might have a couple of those, but it's it is. Really wildly entertaining for me to. And you, you almost have to, you have to have the captions on, I think, to catch them, to catch them all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I saw "I'm gonna cook you" and "I'm gonna eat you," it made me wonder: was this in the script, or was did they just tell Bruce Willis to just yell things at this guy, and that's what he came up with? <laughs> hey, Bruce, talk like a human being. <laughs> did you guys just hear that? Or they're just like, just trash talk him a little while you're fighting him, and he didn't know what that meant really. <laughs> Bruce, have you ever been in a fight before? <laughs> a lot of talk of cannibalism, right? Well, you think about like you think about like who the top uh, trash talker was in sports back then, and it was Mike Tyson. Like Mike Tyson was probably heavyweight champion of the world when this came out. So I wonder if this is just Bruce Willis being inspired by Mike Tyson. Uh, he's like, well, what would Tyson say? I'm gonna cook you, and I'm gonna eat you. Um, All right, that does that does track. Uh, we also have the first mention of Richard Thornburg, the reporter, who is uh, a character that I don't think I would have even noticed really, except it's William Atherton, uh, who is notable, memorable as Dickless in Ghostbusters. Yep, and I think that goes back to I may have mentioned this earlier, but I love the casting of um, really good uh, supporting character or supporting castmates in this, in this movie, like not just William Atherton who makes that reporter all the more irritating, but also Paul Gleason as the, uh, as the, as the cop, he's the uh, principal from the breakfast club. Yep. And he's the, uh, he's kind of the LAPD uh, boss on hand. Uh, and he's completely inept. Mm-hmm. And uh, the FBI, the FBI uh, bosses Johnson and Johnson. You got Robert Davi there, and mm-hmm. uh, I think his name is Grand L. Bush. I mm-hmm. hadn't seen the other guy in anything, but um, just just stellar uh, casting. I agree. I totally agree. Kind of filling out, c- kind of borrowing on some of their their uh, previous history to fill out some of that character, especially with Gleason there yeah. and with uh, 
kind of Robert Davi as, as a uh, Vietnam vet who's just uh, <laughs> really excited to be in the helicopter later. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like uh, it, you're right where it, they, it does rely on their former work a little bit because, you know, Paul Gleason shows up and you, you can look at him and you just know this guy is going to be no help. And <laughs> William Atherton shows up in a news studio and you just look at him and you're like, okay, well, this guy's not going to be helpful for anyone. This is, he's going to make things worse in some way. I don't know how, but this guy, that's just what this guy does in movies. And uh, it's great. I, I kind of forgot Atherton was in here and it almost be good to watch again to realize the first thing he does that makes him a dick versus me just seeing his face and thinking this guy's a smarmy dick. <laughs> he may not even say anything like, like, you know, establishing that kind of character in the first scene. I don't even know. I just, I bring that baggage. His first scenes in the studio with, where he's trying to plead to his boss to let him go cover the story for the evening news. And so that's all, um, he's really not that bad in that, in that scene, but it's when he shows up at the McLean household and threatens the housekeeper with calling the INS on her and uh, yeah. <laughs> and then you know puts puts the kids on TV that it becomes uh, yeah he's he's clearly a a secondary villain of sorts I guess in the movie not exactly a villain but an antagonist a uh, side antagonist mm-hmm. um uh let's see yeah the uh the FBI helicopters are destroyed are destroyed during this section, and uh, that is when you get the great line from Robert Davi of uh, "It's just like flying into Saigon, huh, Slick?" And uh, <laughs> and his partner's like, "I was in junior high, man." So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, and then Argyle's moment of heroism as well mm-hmm. is right here. So it's it's pretty pretty cool. Uh, a weary and battered McLean finds Holly with Gruber and his remaining men, Eddie and Kristoff. After knocking Kristoff unconscious, McLean confronts Gruber and is ordered to surrender his submachine gun. McLean does this to spare Holly, but distracts Gruber and Eddie by laughing and grabs a concealed pistol taped to his back that contains two bullets. McLean wounds Gruber and kills Eddie. Gruber crashes through a window but grabs onto Holly's wrist. He makes a last-ditch attempt to kill the pair, but McLean unclasps Holly's wristwatch and Gruber falls to his death on the street below. Um, the aforementioned Rolex. Yes. The symbol everything of... Is, yeah, almost everything in the the finale and throughout it is kind of set up. You know, it's... it's uh, if you're just watching it as, as an action movie, you can maybe miss some of the, some of the setups, but almost everything is foreshadowed. Yeah. The the this, the wristwatch as the the symbol of Holly's work in California, the you know the that is what is uh, her job you know being what is what is keeping her from John in a way and uh, John letting go of of his issues and then letting go of the Rolex allows them to uh, to escape this uh, this this horrible point in their lives. It's it's a nice little bit of symbolism that doesn't belabor the point too much. They set it up and then they have it. And if you catch it, you catch it. If not, that's not what this movie's really about. <laughs> it's just, this movie's mostly about the action and having fun. So they're, they're not going to, you know, hit you over the head with, uh, with little moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to, uh, cut into thematic 
details too soon, but uh, also the wristwatch is a fairly problematic symbol. Um, if you really think about it, it's a, it's a little, uh, little, little primitive and a little sexist that uh, now that her career is out of the way, we can get the man and the woman back together like it should be. Right. You know? Yeah. That's, that is one of uh, the movies, I guess that's, that's a very eighties problem, which is, you know, like mm-hmm. women, women have careers of their own. It's, it's, I think it's around the same year working girl came out and whatnot. And mm-hmm. it's, it was the sort of a, a theme in Hollywood at the time. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I can, I can definitely see that being a little problematic. Finishing up the plot outside McLean and Holly meet Powell. Carl emerges who I thought Carl got like, he, he, you know, they, the McLean like knocked out a few guys, but Carl, he like strangled to death. I thought, and, but Carl just emerges and attempts to shoot McLean, but is killed by Powell. Thornburg arrives and tries to interview McLean, but Holly punches him. Argyle crashes through the parking garage door in the limo and leaves the area with McLean and Holly. And a Christmas song plays us out. Yeah, I think the one thing that paragraph I don't I don't think it mentions is uh, Powell's role in taking out Carl. Mm-hmm. Part of the uh, the the finally fulfilled foreshadowing the. And completely unsubtle, the camera is like going up from the gun, and we all know, yeah, we know who, who fired this gun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, yep, it's him. Well, it it shows the hand go to the holster immediately, mm-hmm. and then it focuses back on Carl and the McLeans, and uh, it still tries to make it kind of this mystery as to who fired these yeah. shots. And well, it was, it was probably the cop reaching for his gun is who fired the shots. <laughs> Was that Carl's other gun? Oh, no, it was Al. I forgot. It was Powell. <laughs> um, again, yeah, again, you know, it's, it's, it's nice for him to have a hero moment, like a, a part of in the action, but it is the most, I think, clunkily yeah. set up uh, payoff in the movie. Yeah. His, his hero moment <clears throat> is, yes, he, he did kill the bad guy by firing into a uh, crowded group <laughs> of like uh, first responders and survivors. <laughs> That's that's like a magnum too. Like, did that go through Carl and get anybody? I don't know. You know, for I feel like a, a really cynical movie would have had him would have had this cop who <clears throat> already has made poor decisions before on on like when to pull his gun would have had him just like fire aimlessly and like shoot people in the crowd or something. It really just like like Carl gets to kill or McLean because. Uh, <clears throat> This cop just randomly started shooting, but no, this is a heroic movie. So the the, the happy ending is what we get. Or uh, <laughs> McLean says, "Al, he was holding a ray gun." <laughs> the use of the word <laughs> "ray gun" in the movie was surprising, and it made me wonder if. So I, I guess I always thought that that term was much older. <laughs> I didn't know it was still commonplace in the eighties, where toys mm. still called ray guns, but. <clears throat> Anyway, that's the plot. That's the story. And uh, so now we'll, we'll get into, um, let's get into sort of, uh, yeah, some talk about the themes, which uh, I guess I didn't really think about the themes of this movie. And I think some, they're, they're, let's, let's start with this. There have been a lot of themes suggested just on the Wikipedia page alone. The editor of the Die Hard Wikipedia page is, uh, is quite um, thorough with their thematic discussion and uh it's it's more than you see on a typical 
Wikipedia page. But um, yeah, we thank you for it. Yeah, it saved us the work of thinking about it. So um, there are a few that I, I think I buy into, and then a few that not so much. But um, the first, and these aren't in any particular order, but the first one I jotted down was uh, Die Hard as an action movie that moves on from the the Vietnam influenced era of action movies, and this is one that I definitely do buy into, and. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I think there are a couple of things that I really like about it from this aspect. And that is, first off, you have Robert Davi speaking the line about Vietnam and then his buddy telling him, uh, you know, basically move on, man. Vietnam's over. We are. I was a kid. I am not influenced by that war the way you are. And yeah. And the the helicopter action is one that is ultimately, you know, pointless and futile. Oh, yeah, good point. Nice. I I think the one other aspect is that the villains themselves, you, you, know, you think about the 80s and the types of villains you typically saw in action movies in the 80s, and they were, it was always just sort of communist. You know, make the bad guys communist, make them either Russians, make them, uh, you know, Southeast Asian communist, make them some sort of communist. So it's all Cold War related. Uh, except for this movie. This movie makes them... European capitalists, and which is a, a stark difference, I think, than what we typically saw in movies of the era. Yeah, it's 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 that uh, I think it's both moving it forward to where actions was going to go, and also it's a throwback to like James Bond, like these these essentially guys that just want money. There's no mm-hmm. ideology there. They're not trying to control the world. It's not overthrowing the U.S. government from like a communist or like Islamic state that you see in like that's probably the other big bad guy you saw in 80s movies and into 90s movies. It's just old school. You know, I'll have a billion dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I also like how they they kind of mock those types of villains too. In that uh, they you know uh, Gruber radios down his command or his, uh, his demand to the police. And he's yeah, just like, I have so, a list. So of, <laughs> I have a list of these political prisoners and his, his buddy asks me, who is that? And he's like, I don't know. I read about him in time magazine. <laughs> like, I don't care. <clears throat> and you still All have, playbook. <laughs> you still had villains making those demands years later. Like I think about like air force one and that whole movie is predicated. That whole movie is, you know, die hard on a plane. And it's, uh, it, the whole movie is predicated on the release of a political prisoner. And so that movie feels old by comparison to Die Hard, even though it came out nine years later. That's because Die Hard had a very fresh take on, on the genre. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not to get too deep into it, but it's really interesting, the otherness of these terrorists. Like, the only thing that kind of unites them, because there's... There's German, there's, I don't know, just Russian, I'm just guessing, like maybe Czech people, there's uh, African American, there's some Mongolian kind of Asian guy. They're all identified by otherness, but if you think about it, their aim of capitalism is the same it's the same aim as the people that work in Nakatomi Plaza, right? Mm-hmm. It's the reason they're breaking ground in that facility. It's the same, they have kind of the same goal. I don't know what it's really trying to say there. There is definitely uh, some xenophobia in setting these guys up as easy bad guys. And them not just being German kind of makes it a little more problematic that that's the only thing that 
unites them is they're not like John McClane. They're not like our white heroes. But they're also, you know, as similar to, um, you know, Ellis and Holly and everyone that works there. I do think it's interesting about, you know, I, I, I've asked myself, is this movie xenophobic? And I can't quite decide on the answer. I, 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 in ways, I think it is. And in ways, I think it isn't. It, it is... Action movies were at a different place, too, at that point than they are maybe today. And so, uh, you know, you think about John McClane being sort of a just, you know, a red-blooded white American male. And I think he represents that sort of John Wayne type of of classic movie action hero, maybe a Steve McQueen type. Just mm-hmm. somebody who is cool under pressure, an American James Bond uh, the character that America never quite had, um, and you think about you know the the character, and I think I mentioned this maybe at the beginning of the podcast, uh, but like the the action stars of the mid '80s were not those types of of people. They were European. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the biggest star in in American action movies at the time, and so mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's possibly an interesting. Um, Maybe not. For me, it's not so much that the 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 villains. I, I don't think it's so much as a, a remark on uh, outside cultures in general, but more on the action genre is, I think, what the movie. If the movie has a statement, I think it's more of a statement on the action genre and how uh, it's it maybe casts the direction of action movies as the villain in this movie Mm -hmm. and gets things back to basics, a throwback to the Gary Cooper of old. Um, Cause, uh, cause yeah, you know, and you just think like the action, Sylvester Stallone isn't European, but he's very muscle bound and he's very uh, not, not the same body type as, you know, these other action stars we've talked about. John Wayne was just a guy. He was just a tough guy. And Robert Mitchum was a tough guy. And I mean, maybe these weren't action stars necessarily, but they were the film heroes of the past that I think John McClane is a throwback to. Mm-hmm. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd push back just a little bit on what I think they're trying to do there with John McClane. I think they are giving him the shades of the, the old Western hero wearing the white hat. But I think what they do... Just thinking of being cool under pressure to maybe to a point or at times, but we also, I think, which is pretty rare for an action movie, is we basically almost see John McClane having panic attacks and like reaching out to Al and like almost breaking down, like, I don't know if I can do this, you know, taking glass out of his foot, like almost sobbing through it and hyperventilating through some stuff. I think you, they make him more. I think they do more to make him an everyman in that respect of it kind of puts you more in that action than I think uh, kind of closer to um, an audience avatar than a faultless upstanding moral hero. I'd, I, I did think that that was interesting and kind of watching it again and kind of looking out for some stuff. I do agree with that. I, I didn't, I, I certainly don't think he's faultless or the same type of kind of shining beacon that maybe a Gary Cooper would be. But I just, I do think he, I do think his casting is a bit of a throwback compared to what was uh, becoming the more commonplace 80s action hero type at the time. But um, 
you know, another another one of the themes that I noticed in the in the Wikipedia, which was this one, I had a little more trouble really buying into was uh, the themes uh, of uh, Catholicism and uh, comparing McLean to a Christ figure, which I think is an interesting concept. And there there is some evidence that I did notice in the movie. Like, I, obviously, there's the stigmata of the feet. Mm-hmm. that he goes through and he has to walk through glass to, to get, you know, to find his salvation. Uh, and then the one other thing that I did notice that was a, is a very curious line. And it made me wonder if maybe this was the, this, there was some intent here, even though I don't know that it quite pulled it off, but when he fights his way at the end, back to the room where Gruber has Holly and the two other henchmen are there, uh, you know, McLean is, is hobbling down this hallway illuminated his silhouette by light from, from behind and he's just holding a submachine gun and he's kind of hunched over and Holly, this is the first time she has seen her husband uh, since the beginning of this whole, this whole thing. And she doesn't say John, she doesn't gasp. She just kind of looks at him and just says, Jesus, like <laughs> that is literally what she said. She literally just says, Jesus. And I was thinking like, well, that's an odd thing for the wife to say, you know, the first time she's seen her husband, she's not like happy. She's not, she's, she's more just like in awe of John, just still hobbling down this hallway. Uh, mm-hmm. This like relentless, this relentless guy who won't die. And I, I don't know that I fully buy that this movie has strong things to say about Catholicism, but it wouldn't. I, I can see how some people might try to read into it based on a, f- a few bits of evidence. Yeah, I think the one of the writers, Stephen D'Souza, even gave I think some some quotes afterwards that they did anticip- They were trying to write John as a Christ figure that he's sacrificing for for all these people, and that's why he kind of thinks it has some some Christmas themes to it. You know, not to spoil it, but. Yeah. Uh, I I also think that's probably writer director bullshit a little bit. <laughs> well, you can put like Christ or Catholic themes on anything. You know, it's a very old book. It's pretty influential. You probably get that or Shakespeare or something out of any movie if you really looked for it. Right. Well, speaking of Christmas, let's let's jump into the big question surrounding well, Die Hard. Before that that one, I just wanted to go for I it. Did a, a little bit of research in the wikipedia and uh, some of the changes from the book so this is uh you know adapted from a 1978 book nothing lasts mm-hmm. forever former um former nypd detective wrote it i forgot who wrote it but and i was just uh i just had it in my notes thinking of the xenophobic thing you know we're thinking of the villains but i think there might be some xenophobia in our protagonists or our victims as well like the uh, the Nakatomi Corporation, mm-hmm. that was a uh, deliberate change from the book. The book has that as like the Klaxon Oil Company, and the Joseph Takagi type is just a, a white guy named Mister Rivers. So they decided on purpose for whatever reason to make it a a Japanese company that was going to be, you know, because of its. You know, this is, I guess, my interpretation, but because of its expansion and capitalism and being a being the 80s, everyone was kind of worried about Japanese companies coming in and an impact on the economy. Um, I wonder if there's a uh, either a 
on purpose or a subconscious thing of blaming the victims a little bit. Like they're kind of there and have the money because of, I don't know. There's, it just feels like there's something there. There was definitely a deliberate change to make that from an oil company, which is, uh, you know, as American as Daniel Plainfield, Plainview, <laughs> Plainview. <laughs> uh, to the Nakatomi Corporation, which I don't know. Yeah, like even if I don't know that it's blaming the victims, it definitely paints them as a another like wedge between John and Holly. Like, mm-hmm. like this is just an American guy trying to find his happiness, and it's being ruined by you know Japanese companies and uh, German fascist capitalists or whatever. And uh, in, in a way it's almost just like, this is just a uh, red, this movie is just red meat for the, you know, the baby boom generation of uh, it's like, oh, you know, we, we grew up with communism and whatnot being the big thing to worry about. But you know, our parents always told us about fighting the, the Japanese and fighting the Germans. And so whatever happened to, to those kind of villains in movies. And so it, I, I think there's obviously some there there because uh, otherwise why change it? But yeah, maybe just tapping into some cultural anxiety of, of boomer generation, like these Japanese countries and their electronics. And, you know, we have these women trying to go to work and be away from their, <laughs> be away from their spouses, ripping families apart. You have kind of both of those, those uh, topics kind of hand in hand with, Holly Gennaro at working at Nakatomi. I do at least like that John acknowledges and has an epiphany and a breakthrough far too late in his marriage, but uh, that he does at least recognizes that he needs to uh, get over those old fashioned, uh, you know, kind of impulses that he has. And when he gives the radio message to Al telling him to just apologize to Holly and Mm -hmm. uh, tell him that he just, couldn't couldn't deal and and it is kind of about masculinity in the 80s uh, being i don't know if masculine and masculinity was not under assault but you know there was that's when you know maybe some masculinity started feeling a bit fragile for a lot of guys and uh i think it addresses a little bit of that and i wouldn't say he's a, a extremely progressive hero but he is uh he is somewhat, at least I, I do, I do like that he realizes that he was wrong to be so um, frustrated by her uh, career success. Yeah. So, yeah, ultimately I'm kind of torn of, is, is it xenophobic or is it using an action movie to discuss some, or at least on the side, some xenophobia and confronting that stuff? Because he does, he does have that revelation. They are together in the end, but it doesn't mean that she sacrifices the career. It kind of symbolically feels that way, but um, I don't know. Would it be even more xenophobic if uh, it was an oil corporation? And you know, in the book, it's his daughter that is uh, working at the oil company, not his wife. So there's definitely some some purposeful changes that they made. Um, I don't know whether it's progressive or, or not. Maybe I'll have to watch it one more time to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always down for more rewatches of Die Hard. Uh, all right. I think that gets us to the, the big Die Hard question. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is it a good Christmas movie? 
Uh, is it not a Christmas movie at all? What defines the term Christmas movie for you? And, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a rote kind of, uh, I don't know, almost a trope of discussing Die Hard at this point. But mm-hmm. um, I'm curious where you stand on this uh, this debate. Um, I think it's a Christmas movie. I think it's the... So you think, like, what... Could you have this movie without Christmas? I think is is the question that I would ask. Um, you could. It probably wouldn't work as well. It wouldn't make as much sense why he's flying across the country and she happens to need to be at this party and there is a there's definitely some you some unexplored Christmas themes in this kind of movie. I was looking at a uh, website, uh, this guy Stephen Follows, that does a um, film data, and uh, he had some good points about your typical Christmas movie, like It's a Wonderful Life, whatever. Um, People that say that it's a Christmas movie, it's typically about Christmas themes of joy, love, family, you know, nostalgia, um, all that is kind of the typical Christmas message. But where I think Die Hard is a Christmas movie is it's almost the opposite part of Christmas. Of Some people, Christmas means joy, love, and family. Other people, it's about family dysfunction. It's about uh, loneliness. You know, it can be, it's a really lonely holiday. <clears throat> it can be about cynicism, about commercialization of, of all this stuff. <clears throat> I think a, you have loneliness, cynicism, and dysfunction as themes in this movie with a Christmas setting. And, uh, you know, you have Christmas and Hollis, you have Christmas songs throughout Winter Wonderland. And uh, just think at the very end, what what is taping the gun to his back to kill the uh, final villain? It is like Happy Holidays Christmas tape, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it, yeah, I tend to be a contrarian when it comes to this stuff because it's just more fun if it's a Christmas movie than if I say, no, it's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? It's it. Your your points are very convincing, and I, I was never quite sure where I stood on Die Hard as a Christmas movie. On the one hand, it is. I agree. It's very. It's you know. It has Christmas related themes and and whatnot. But it's uh. It's also not like. It, it doesn't have that warm, fuzzy feeling of watching the movie in the same way that watching, you know, a, a National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation might give you. Uh, it's not about Christmas, uh, ostensibly. It's not, you know, very obviously about Christmas. But you know, I think the, the your points of, of what the the underlying themes of and how they are they are themes that resonate at Christmas for a lot of people. It's a really good point. And maybe the movie is also a bit of a commentary on commercialism of Christmas and how, you know, here at Christmas, what's everybody worried about? They're worried about making money and getting stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Nakatomi Corporation is celebrating all the money they're making. And the our band of thieves are celebrating a billion dollars that they're about to pull out of a vault. And that's, that's their, that's what they're getting for Christmas. So, I want someone to argue out there that it's an elaborate remake of the, how the Grinch stole Christmas and Gruber <laughs> is the Grinch. <laughs> they're taking uh, all the, the Christmas bulbs and everything out of Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I think it is a Christmas movie. Now, do you uh, – would you rate it as high – like when you – when people talk about what the best Christmas movie is, would you – even if you do consider Die Hard – let's say you consider Die Hard a Christmas movie and let's say you consider Die Hard a great movie, which I, I consider it both of those things. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that it's necessarily the greatest Christmas movie just because I don't think that's its focus as much. I think it's something that enhances the movie and makes it better, but I don't know that that's really the, the I don't know. You, you know what I'm getting at here? I do, yeah. It's it's the Venn diagram of greatness and Christmasness, and uh, yeah, its Christmasness rating is basically... You got you got to. If I say that Die Hard is my favorite Christmas movie, I need to figure out who's asking me that question. Are they someone <laughs> fun, or because they have an idea of what a Christmas movie is in their head? Um, even if it was someone fun, I probably wouldn't say it's my favorite Christmas. Movie. Probably not even in a top top tier of Christmas movies because it's a Christmas movie to me only because of how on the edge and underside of a Christmas movie it is. It's not the best example of a Christmas movie, while I still think it is a Christmas movie. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of where I am. Uh, It's a movie that I enjoy watching 12 months of the year. I could put this on in May and have a blast, but I also enjoy watching it this time of the year. And yet, it's not the movie where if I'm, you know, on a cold December night and I want to, you know... Uh, settle in with my wife for a Christmas movie, I don't know that Die Hard is what would come to mind because it's not a movie that's going to enhance my Christmas spirit in any way, but it is a fun movie to watch this time of the year. Yeah. For that, you go to Gremlins, right? Gremlins, yes. (laughs) The other, you know, outside the Christmas movie. Man, that movie I completely forget is a Christmas movie, except, and luckily they have a Christmas song playing loudly over the opening credits to remind you and just to establish that this is a Christmas movie. Cause I always, always forget. I've only seen it a couple of times. I don't have a, yeah. a and, strong. And you have the, the truly horrifying Phoebe Cates story about Santa that is like still haunts me. Cause I saw that movie when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, it was gremlins nominated for anything. Maybe we'll have a gremlins podcast one day. I would hope uh, visual effects or yeah. special special creature creation award. Well, speaking of nominations, that's called a segue. Uh, this is uh, this is kind of the, the 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 point of the podcast is uh, to also talk about uh, how Die Hard fared at the Oscars. So the sixty well, this has been the sixty first Oscars, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was nominated for four Academy Awards, which I never knew it was nominated, but uh, they're not completely surprising. It was nominated for Best Film Editing against Gorillas in the Mist, Mississippi Burning, Rain Man, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was nominated for Best Visual Effects against Willow and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was uh, was nominated for Best Sound Effects Editing against Willow and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it was nominated for Best Sound, that was the name of the category at the time, Against Gorillas in the Mist, Mississippi Burning, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Bird. So, uh, let's start with best film editing. Um, it obviously we're not going through and watching all of these movies before this, uh, before talking about Die Hard. But mm-hmm. um, did Die Hard strike you as a 
particularly well-edited movie. And uh, did it strike you as the kind of movie that would be a strong contender for this award? And um, and then how would you compare it to the movie that won, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, if you're able to compare it? Yeah, this is uh, – and we're, we're starting on the one that's maybe the most esoteric and hard to define. Maybe this and cinematography yeah. for me are, are the toughest. And I kind of think of what what would your average voter think editing is. And uh, in terms of maybe the pace, it is uh, almost a perfectly paced action movie where you have uh, you have lulls and you have that was L U L L, not L O Ls. <laughs> you have lulls in the action. You have like high points, and it it seems to be pitched just almost perfectly to be that kind of movie that you just watch over and over again. That you could probably watch as soon as it finishes, start it up again. Um, it's just such a good delivery system of giving you the the humor, giving you the uh, the character, and giving you the explosions and guns. And I think really influential. I mean, when I say influential, I'm not a film historian, so it's hard for me to qualify that. But it seems influential for uh, action movies that were going to follow this. Um, maybe get some of the like. Uh, you know, immediately following like some of the Tom Clancy adaptation movies, I kind of think in are in the Die Hard editing kind of mode. Not as funny as Die Hard is, but um, yeah, I think that's it's 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 probably that's the one I'd probably give it give the most credence to because it's just it kind of made a new um, a new example of how to do an action movie. That, that had a little more going for it. Now, I did have an opportunity to... to uh, I did watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit because I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And uh, it, it took film editing and is uh, it's it's pretty obvious example of film editing um, for, yeah. for this Academy Awards is you have cartoons and people side by side and you don't have constant cognitive dissonance that, you know, what the hell's going on that in itself is a pretty good feat of film editing and yeah. actually feeling for the cartoon characters and having the cartoon I, characters actions actually, you know, seem to have gravity in the scenes with live action people. You know, it's, it's definitely been done before, you know, there's Don Knotts movies you could point to there's chitty, chitty, bang, bang. There's all kinds of stuff, but it's uh, yeah, it's probably the, the best it had been done up until that point. So I, I can see why, um, they would have gone for it. Um, I don't. I don't know if I would call it a kind of a, a stunt for that kind of film editing, but uh, you know, to you're obviously voting for it because it's a it's a cartoon and a live action movie. But uh, it's it's almost close to that for why I got that. I might put Die Hard ahead of it. You know, kind of recognizing that. Okay, you you did it probably as best as someone can do it, but. I don't know. I'd probably still go for that hard there. I look at those t- at film editing and also visual effects, those two categories, and I think, okay, I understand Who Framed Roger Rabbit probably has earned a, uh, an award in one of these two, but it feels repetitive to give it in both because its visual effects are also its film editing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I feel like if it's going to win one, it probably shouldn't win the other. Um, 
but that's just me trying to be, uh, you know, a fair-minded voter and whatnot. They, the voters don't have this information in front of them when they're when they're voting. But uh, I've seen Rain Man. I, nothing about that movie strikes me as like, you know, wow, the editing in this movie. But uh, Die Hard would have probably gotten my vote here. I, I really like this movie for the same reasons you laid out, which is uh, it's it's a really well. T- it's not a particularly complicated movie, but there are. Uh, there are multiple storylines, at least storylines going on in multiple mm-hmm. places. So you have you have the basement with the, or the parking garage. You have the floor with the, the hostages. You have McLean obviously running around wherever he is. You have the parking lot, and so it does a really good job of bouncing back and forth between all these places. We never spend too long wondering what's going on with a particular storyline, and it always feels like it gets back to John really quickly. We never deviate too long from the main driving point of the movie. And it's, uh, it's really well told from that perspective. Uh, a lot happens in that movie and it's like, what, less, just right at two hours or so. Yeah. And it feels like a, it feels like a very dense movie with a lot going on. And so it's, it's, uh, I do think it's really well edited and really well paced. So no, you, you, I am I, disappointed that it lost. Yeah, you bring up a great point there. I didn't even really think about that. That's the thing about film editing is you you know where where do you even take to explain it because it's so so inherent to just being a movie is that it's edited. It's it, it's kind of like uh, in football, like offensive lines. You only notice them when they do things wrong. When they're like uh, rhapsody. <laughs> yeah. So like normally editing is should be a thing you don't notice while you're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Um, yeah, keeping track of those, I didn't even think about that, but the, you have the different levels of the building and different levels of action that are going on. You start off with like just John and then you're, you got multiple floors, you're thinking about it first, and then you got the outside and then you got multiple things going on in the outside. It just is, is ballooning the more the movie goes on, but it does not feel like the narrative gets weighty or gets complicated. It's like, it's a great point. Thanks. Well, let's go to uh, best visual effects. And this is a three picture race. Like I said, uh, Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Willow and Who Framed Roger Rabbit took it because its visual effects were hand drawn animated characters on every frame of the movie. And so that was pretty impressive at the time. I think Die Hard probably wins in a traditional year where it's, you know, uh, practical, impressive visual effects. But, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to add on visual effects category? Um, this one, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say what's what, but I might give it to Who Framed Roger Rabbit for this, just because uh, you do have the things that are drawn, but you also have the things that are kind of the hybrid in between the cartoon world and the live action world. I'm thinking of just the extremely disturbing Judge Doom stuff and him getting <laughs> flattened and then uh, you know getting inflate him inflating himself back up. And the, right. uh, the the drums of the you know the dip the little white chemical that can dissolve cartoons, I think it does it does a pretty good job of, I'd say the visual effects are are some of what is blending, the uh, the zany things that happen in the cartoon world making them exist in the real world, so yeah, but yeah. Uh, I agree. I, this is where I would reward Roger Rabbit. I think because I mean Die Hard the effects are cool. But there's nothing, I think, jaw-dropping about the effects in Die Hard. 
the the action in Die Hard is mostly driven by the the characters. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sound effects sound effects editing also went to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, it was also Die Hard versus Willow versus uh, Roger Rabbit. Um, this is. Uh, this is the same category that carried its name until, I guess, now when the category has finally been killed. But um, this is a creation of sound effects. So uh, anything strike you here? Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, again, a two-horse race with, with Die Hard. I think making things feel so visceral and physical, from the, the gunshots to the glass to things exploding, it doesn't feel like it's happening... Um, I was going to say, like, a cartoon version. Uh, no pun intended for Roger Rabbit in the same category, but it doesn't feel like there's there's stock effects going on. Like, it feels like... Uh, I think they made the, the guns actually loud, like like they would be in real life. Um, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of sound in Die Hard. From Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, I can see how it went to... It went there because it's just a... Uh, probably a little bit of nostalgia you have the Mm -hmm. sound effects you've heard since you were like probably a baby because you have you have uh you got mickey mouse you got donald duck daffy duck everybody you have cartoon mallets and you know mallets on springs that go all the way out and and it's just your classic cartoon sounds kind of come to life and updated a little bit so they they would be pretty close for me. I, I might give it to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, just because uh, you know I I'm often out of my element for this kind of stuff. The the, the bullets did sound like bullets in Die Hard, but um, I don't this is always this has always been the category too where it's like do I do I need to try to figure out how good the effects editing was from watching the movie or should or do I need to actually go like listen to this to the Foley artist talk about how he you know, it's like, well, here's how I designed John punching Carl. And, uh, like, does, should that matter to me? I don't know. I've, I've a, I have a hard time. So I, I think I typically like to just base it on my experience with the movie. Mm-hmm. And if you're good enough on the technical side, then you'll impress me in that way. And if not, you just won't. Like, uh, I remember this year, last year when Ford versus Ferrari, we were, you know, it was talking about all the, the ways that they captured sound for that movie. And I just thought, well, those, you know, the methods are really cool if I'm a filmmaker, but I'm not a filmmaker. I don't really care a whole lot about how they captured particular sounds of this engine. I just care how it sounds in the movie, really. And uh, I think I would give the editing, the sound effects editing to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That would get my vote as well, just based on my memory. Um, So far, I'm in lockstep with you on these awards, but... Um, brings us to best sound, which eventually turned into best sound mixing, and I think is now just going to be best sound again. <laughs> They've gone back to just best sound, mm-hmm. and uh, so this one, uh, Die Hard lost, but it did not lose to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, they both lost to Bird, a movie I have never heard of. Is it about Charlie Parker? It is. Yeah, Clint Eastwood oh, really? directed a Charlie Parker biopic, and Forrest Whitaker plays uh, plays Bird. Uh, have you ever seen it? I, I have not seen it, but uh, if you're thinking of the the two classic sound categories, this would be what we would call sound mixing, and the yeah. classic thing of like you give mixing to to music and you give editing to explosions. Um, I could see why this one, because this one is 
this is going to have, I haven't seen it. I guess that's, that's a disclaimer, but I'm assuming it shows a lot of uh, performance of Charlie Parker uh, playing music and music happening. Um, so, yeah. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't vouch for Die Hard's mixing when you can't clearly hear, hear him yell, I'm going to cook you and I'm going to eat you. <laughs> I mean, we need to be able to more distinctly hear these lines in the movie. I want to hear every thing that Bruce Willis says uh, in this movie. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have a strong... I, I feel like Die Hard was, maybe should have won editing. And um, other than that, I don't think it was too cheated at the Oscars. Uh, there is a, there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about real quick before we finish up, and it's uh, they, I, I wanted to bring them up earlier, but I, I had them in the wrong place on the agenda, so I'll fix that before episode two. But um, I uh, I wanted to talk f- about the cast and the director a little bit uh, before we wrap up. And mm-hmm. um, first off, just uh, this uh, this cast did was there anybody and uh, we can go through them, but it's was, was there anybody that you think of as this is just a great performance. Um, anybody? Um, yeah, kind of segueing from uh, Academy Awards, I think that there is a best supporting actor that probably should have gone to Alan Rickman for Ooh. coming up with this uh, this new archetype of, of villain. I don't know if it was uh, brand new. Again, I haven't seen every movie ever, but um, he finds a way to kind of chew the scenery that makes him such a delightful evil person. Um, when he's uh, talking about his, his demands, you're, you're as an audience member and he goes like, I read about them on, you know, I saw them on time magazine. You're so delighted by his like wicked disregard for, <laughs> for pretty much society. And he's just so fun while being, there is nothing redeeming about him. It, the movie never goes into his past. Um, you don't really see any of that in in Rickman's performance. It's all kind of the charm and charisma of just being a professional and being exasperated by the things that are making his job harder. And he's just he's just <laughs> such a delight to to watch on screen and just the. the He's such a. I mean, there's a reason he's one of the most like imitated voices, is because he's just so unique. Like there's there's Watkins' voice, there's Rickman's voice. It's just one of those voices. Like yeah. um, you said, you need miracles. I give you the FBI. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> it's just so good. He is so good. He is. Um... Yeah, I agree. He's 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 chewing his scenery, but in a way that just makes me happy to sit down and eat with him. You know, he is just you can tell this is delicious dialogue that he's been given and he is just savoring it. Uh, And it's so fun to watch. And incredibly, this is his uh, big screen debut. Yeah, that's that's insane. (laughs) <laughs> to have the gravitas that he brings to this movie, and it's the first he, he had done some TV work, I believe. Um, I don't really know much about his career before this movie. I don't know where McTiernan or whoever found him, but he's uh, this is his first movie, and my God, it's a hell of a performance. Yeah, I think he's he's a classic uh, British stage actor. He was in like the uh, the play Dangerous Liaisons is based on. 
Like he was mm-hmm. the I think John Malkovich character before that became a movie. Like he was he had some pretty high profile. Uh, I don't know if it was just like on in West End London Broadway or if it was actually over here, but uh, yeah, just so much confidence to his first screen performance. It's it's. I think that is one of there's so many touches in this movie that makes it just beyond a normal action movie. I think mm-hmm. having a a villain who is so good is uh, is part of what brings it, it. It just makes it a different cut of movie. Like I'm thinking of like think of uh, some of the movies that that this inspires, like Die Hard in a prison, like The Rock or someone. The Rock movie um, with Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, the villain. I almost always forget who it is in that movie. Yeah, the you know, like Die Hard on a Train with Under Siege, or uh, yeah, or Under Siege Two, Dark Territory would be uh, on the train, and Under Siege is on a boat, and it's it's like I, I don't know anything about those villains. I don't care about those villains. The, I think the mark of a great action villain is when you're a little bit sad when they die, and. When Hans Gruber falls, it's kind of like, ah, uh, I mean, way to go, McLean. But on the same hand, I'm going to miss Hans Gruber mm-hmm. after he falls to his death. He's not going to get any more moments of uh, on the walkie-talkie with John. That's that's sad. Yeah. Um, Bruce Willis also in this movie is fantastic. Uh, I think he is, he is phenomenal. I don't think it's a great, like, necessarily, like... Uh, thespian performance but i think it is i think it's a great physical performance and he's just uh there's so much charisma he is uh i mean he was still on moonlighting at this point he was virtually unknown in film i would imagine i i can't i can't think of a bruce willis movie that came out before this mm-hmm. uh, that i'm familiar with um this is also uh, a year after the return of Bruno, his first solo album. So uh, you know, it's, uh, it's he had a lot of a lot of irons in the fire at this point. Yeah, he's bringing that Bruno energy to Die Hard. I think he did, and he's he's a perfect vehicle for this. I think uh, I forgot some of the people, but Bruce Willis was not the first option for this. They kind of went to a bunch of people who passed, but it's kind of. He's kind of a perfect, he's not a perfect everyman in that he's not too jacked and he's not too thin where it's unbelievable that he could do some of the stuff he's doing. He's kind of right perfectly in the middle and he's not Mm -hmm. too funny where you don't uh, take him seriously and he's not too serious where his jokes don't land. He's kind of, uh, I don't know if I'm going to compare him to Porridge, but the Porridge is just right with Bruce Willis in this movie. He kind of can nail all the different things he needs to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to see why, how this movie launched a, a you know a star career for him. Um, the rest of the cast, you know, I, I think third listed here is Alexander Godnov, who was a ballet dancer who played Carl. Um, he's just, he's a, a henchman. I don't really need to spend too much time on him, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I I do, I do think Bonnie Bedelia is pretty good as Holly in this movie, and she's underrated a little bit. Um, yep. I think she's got a toughness to her, which makes you understand how, uh, how she could... I think she's believable in that this is a woman who moved across the country for her career because it was the right thing to do. And, um, but you can also see that she kind of still has... She wants things to work with John, but she's, uh, 
she's not going to put up with his stubbornness. I like I like Bonnie Bedelia a lot in this role. Yeah, and you get you get kind of more of that of how she talks to Hans as as not someone who is uh, you know just crying and wailing for someone like a damsel in distress for John to rescue. Right. But she holds her own in that uh, confrontation about like, you know, unless you want to, you know, you need to take us to the bathrooms unless you want to, you know, all the couches to be new, new bathrooms and, and, uh, you know, refers to him, how he took care of uh, Joseph Takagi, her, her boss and just doesn't really flinch is, is definitely aware of the, the stake she's in, but doesn't, doesn't, uh, isn't traumatized by it. Well, I don't know about traumatized, but isn't uh, bowled over by it. But right, that would be kind of the easy uh, role to to write for someone like that. And yeah, she, her toughness and and steel is definitely uh, an asset in the movie. And that's something you do see in a lot of uh, action movies. You do see just sort of a generic damsel in distress, but she is not that. Mm-hmm. Um, Reginald Vell Johnson as Al Powell, uh, because Reginald Vell Johnson only plays uh, in clothes police officers, <laughs> in uniform police officers. Um, that's, that's all he knows how to do. Uh, I, I, th- I don't know that he's... Um, I don't think he's a particularly great actor, but he is, uh, he brings some, some, you know, down to earth earnestness and soul to this movie. Like, uh, and I don't mean African American soul. I just mean like, uh, you know, like, um, there's, there's a, there's just a real, it's easy to see how John can connect to him. And I think Reginald L. Johnson brings a, just a kindness to the movie. Yeah. For, for John to kind of bear his soul later on about, you know, tell, all the things you need to tell Holly, you need uh, that his cop to cop kind of therapy confessions and his kind of outlets for his, his uh, stress and his panic. You need someone on the other line that, that feels like a real person that you'd want to talk to. And he does a great job of that. He's such a warm presence um, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have some guys we already talked about, Paul Gleason, William Atherton, uh, and I think we already highlighted why they're great. Uh, Hart Bachner plays Ellis, the uh, the sleazy scumbag executive. Um, and uh, really, I think that's that's mostly what I don't want to go too deep on the cast. But uh, anybody, any any other highlights on your end? I did. Uh, I also liked uh, the guy who played Argyle. I think Deborah White is his name. Yes. Um, the it. It's uh you know what we talked about earlier. He does a great job introducing and being a foil to John to kind of present him to the the tower of stress that he's going to be there, and he's some good comic relief when you know when the film editing cuts to him down there and he's making a call and he's talking, listening to Stevie Wonder. It's it's a good pressure relief um, for for audience members. Is it's always kind of nice to go back to see Argyle. And if he was kind of a worse actor, he'd kind of overstay his welcome. And he mm-hmm. almost does, but he doesn't. For <laughs> yeah, he's great. Um, and finally, I want to talk about John McTiernan a little bit, the director of the movie. Never, never want to uh, skip over the director too much. Um, so he started his first uh, movie he directed was called Nomads, 1986 movie that I, I really know nothing about. Um, and then after that, it's, Predator in 1987, mm-hmm. Die Hard in 88, The Hunt for Red October in 90, 
Uh, and then things start to tail off a bit. Medicine Man, last action hero. Uh, I think Die Hard with a Vengeance is a pretty fun movie, and it's a solid bounce back. Mm-hmm. And then The 13th Warrior, Thomas Crown Affair I've seen. It's pretty entertaining. Rollerball, Basic, and uh, a... Uh, I think that's the end of his uh, his his work so far. So, um, do do you think McTiernan is a um, I don't know? Does he does anything strike you about him as a director? And also, like, where does Die Hard rank for you, kind of in his uh, in his oeuvre? Yeah, I, I guess the second part is pretty easy for me. It's it's number one in his oeuvre. Um, I like Predator. I uh, you'll hate me. I've never seen Hunt for Red October. <laughs> it's, um, it's fun, and everything else is kind of just okay. Um, yeah, there, there's an argument that Last Action Hero is kind of ahead of its time, and maybe there's a, a rewatch out there that it's you know it's meta contextual stuff is kind of fun. But I saw it in the theater, and I uh, that was one of the first movies where I was like, movies can be bad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know they could do that. Um, so yeah, Die Hard's number one for me. Um, in terms yeah. of uh, what I think about them, I guess in terms of like underrated, overrated, properly rated, I think he's kind of properly rated. He he's uh, doing these action movies, and then I think looks like he kind of swings too far out. And uh, from the quotes and stuff, it sounds like Last Action Hero and the studio meddling just kind of broke him. And then after that, it's, uh, you know, he's doing a Die Hard sequel, a uh, remake of Thomas Crown Affair, a Michael Crichton adaptation that's just okay, and Rollerballs, a remake, and I don't really want to talk about Basic. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he kind of had the career he had. I think he's... He's pretty properly rated, having made some some A plus, maybe some A plus plus action movies. Um, yeah, that's, what what do you think of uh, McTiernan, and what's your favorite here? Uh, my favorite is easily Die Hard. Um, I think that I've seen Predator; it's fun. I've, I I do really like the Hunt for Red October, and I think Die Hard with a Vengeance is a um, it's a it's a good get back to basics sequel that is not as good as the original, but it's a it's a solid sequel. It kind of reminds me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is uh, a, a movie that really kind of um, it's nowhere near as good as the first movie, but it is it is a fun um, third entry in a series and um, a series that also just won't refuses to die. Uh, this is Die Hard, of course. Uh, so I guess it makes sense why they keep making Die Hard movies. That's, but that's a good comparison. <laughs> um, but yeah, as for McTiernan, um, it, you know, it's funny. Is he overrated? Is he underrated? I don't know how he's rated, but um, he is. Uh, and and I, I've told David about this before, but I have a, a ridiculous, extensive um, uh, database of directors and their films where I have taken their ratings of their movies and attached weights and whatnot to them. And uh, John McTiernan ranks as the 286th greatest director of all time in my, in my date, not my, uh, according to my <laughs> metric, um, which is, uh, I don't know if that's about right. That's a lot of directors for me yeah, to think just, about. Just for but the audience he, who uh, may not have your, uh, your database memorized, do you have anybody who he's above or below on offhand? Well, I can certainly score, uh, sort by 
uh, ranking here. So um, I think he. I mean, he's, he would. I, I he's he's definitely uh, like the diehard of it all puts it up really high. Predator is 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 a real fun movie, and it's he's, it makes a lot of these movies like a lot better than they need to be. Like, there's no reason that Predator would be that good. I don't think it's great or anything, but it could just be like Vietnam vets go hunt an alien. That on its face could be pretty mm-hmm. horrible. Like the Die Hard with a Vengeance one, like the Die Hard two sequels, okay. It's kind of the same thing in an airport. Um, I know they kind of stole another movie's plot and slapped John McClane on it for the sequel, but it's stylish and it's fun. So I don't know. So as for as for directors nearby him. Um... Directors you'll find in the 280s, for example, include uh, Kenneth Lonergan. Um, just because he doesn't have an extensive yeah. body of work, really. I think his movies are probably better on average. Um, Martin McDonough, for the same reason. Uh, he's made fewer movies. But um, uh, George Lucas ranks uh, one spot wow. ahead of McTiernan on the <laughs> list. Um, I think I think Lucas has uh, probably greater contributions to film, but not necessarily mm-hmm. as a director. I think he's made two movies that are better than anything McTiernan put out. But other than that, other than American Graffiti and Star Wars, I don't really think Lucas has a strong directing career. And then one spot behind McTiernan is Victor Fleming. <laughs> uh, so uh, you're going to find good directors in this range. Robert Eggers is number 291, for example. So uh, you're going to have uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet is number 290. So... Um, you know, this, these are directors who have probably three to five good movies under their belt. And uh, McTiernan has that. He has, I would say, four good movies that he's made. And um, I, he doesn't, in my system, he doesn't really get a lot of credit for, uh, he, he gets no credit for Basic or, <laughs> you know, those movies. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, Predator, Die Hard, and... Um, uh, the submarine movie plus Die Hard with a Vengeance are, is a pretty solid four movie base uh, to to have as an action director. So yeah, going forward, we have to have this a thing. Is we need to touch in on the database, <laughs> and like over time, we'll get we'll get a good uh, get a good uh, a good view of yeah. what's going and, on in that brain of yours. <laughs> so McTiernan's average. He has 11 movies in here, and his average movie rating is 3.1, which is fairly low for someone in this range. I mean, Lonergan's average is 3.9, but he has three movies. And McDonough's is 3.9, but he has three movies. So I like how this sort of, uh, you know, it balances, uh, you know, pound for pound great movies, uh, you know, great directors with uh, prolific directors who... It doesn't punish someone for making bad movies. It just rewards you for uh, for making good movies. And again, this, these are not my, my ratings on movies. This is just pulling pulling data from Letterboxd, which is, uh, for me, better than IMDb, at least. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's fun to look at that. But, it brings um, me so much joy to have all of that on the podcast, too. I love, <laughs> I love hearing about your database. We, we simply must do it for every entry now. <laughs> I am excited to do it for every entry. Um, okay, well, let's we'll wrap things up on Die Hard. Any, any finishing thoughts on, on Die Hard just as a, as a movie? Do you, um, do, do you love this movie? Is this, uh, is this one of the great 
the great masterpieces of action for you? I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's on the list of best action movies. Um, it kind of has uh, a little bit of everything you want in an action movie. It's got uh, explosions, but it also has character. And uh, an action movie for me without humor is. Um, I was going to say Christopher Nolan, but he has some resemblance. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it has kind of everything I look for in a good action movie. And uh, it's definitely on my list of top action movies. Um, I think it's uh, in its legacy. You know, we touched on it. The Die Hard in a or Die Hard on a something is just an entire... You could do an entire, you know, hundred movie list where people probably pitched Die Hard on a something. Great movies tend to breed bad movies in their wake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I don't think this is any exception to that. I think this is kind of maybe even the the, the, the golden standard for a great movie uh, breeding a lot of bad movies. Although it also led to some, some good ones. But, you know, Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard on a boat. Etc. Yeah, at least led to enjoyable movies. I mean, I like Speed. I like Con Air. I like. I even like Sudden Death, Die Hard in a hockey stadium. You know, <laughs> but uh, they're not all the best movies, but they're all enjoyable. So, what? What about you? Would it make your list of action movies? Yeah. 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 If even if the list was maybe only three movies long, it might make my list of action mm-hmm. movies. It's a. I think it's just the balance. It's not necessarily the best action, but just everything is fun and it's just uh it's it's really great and even though it does have a few problems i think those are problems that are more uh due to just problems that were everywhere in the late 1980s probably so uh i i don't have i don't take a huge issue with this movie i'm just glad that we've moved on from those problems um Mm -hmm. But yeah, Die Hard is, remains one of my favorite movies. I'm thrilled that we were able to kick off the podcast with something we could be, you know, effusive in praise about because it probably won't always be the case. Yeah. And, uh, but that and leads we proved me... that it's a bona fide Christmas movie. <laughs> yes, it is indeed a Christmas movie. And uh, maybe a movie that was uh, snubbed a little bit at the Oscars. But um. That leads me to, uh, to yeah, the, you know, this was our first episode. So what are we going to be doing in our second episode? Well, I've put all the Oscar-nominated movies into a random database. Uh, it's not a database. It's a, it's a letterboxed watch list that I randomize whenever I need to put together the list. And um, the next movie we're going to be watching is available on Netflix. And it is a 2006 film, I believe. Um. 2006 movie it was nominated for three academy awards uh we're going to be watching pan's labyrinth so uh yeah so so we'll we'll watch that it was nominated for um best actually it was nominated for it won three academy awards that's what it was it was nominated for for six nominated for best foreign language film best original screenplay best cinematography best art direction best makeup and best original score so uh even more things to discuss next time and uh anyway thanks for uh joining me on this david yeah thanks for uh, having me it was a blast and uh and yeah and until next time yeah let us know if you're listening to this let us know if you like the new uh this this little format for uh for the series and um 
yeah, until next time, check out Pan's Labyrinth on Netflix, and uh, and we will discuss it next time on Here Are the Nominees. Yeah, and thanks for uh, listening. Things you can do to help. Uh, we're still on the uh, the we're going to be on the Talkie Talk podcast feed, so uh, keep subscribing there. This should pop up there. It's probably how you're listening to it right now. Um, things you can do to help is subscribe to that podcast. Uh, tell your friends. Um, give us a rating. Five stars would be the uh, the best you could do for us for uh, and it's Christmas, right? Um, you can also uh, email us at uh, themediabyus at gmail.com. We have uh, some Facebook groups for Movies by Us, TV by Us, and Games by Us. And uh, you could tweet tweet with us at themediabyus. Um, and uh, all of that would be greatly appreciated. And, uh, yeah, hope you like the, uh, the new flavor in your ear. And uh, I hope that didn't turn you off right there by me saying that. <laughs> uh yeah all right i forgot how to end these things so thanks david for uh, running through all the things and now i will say bye bye